0: Well, there are lots of reasons to love Easter. And I imagine there's a lot of different reasons that we do love it, even in this room. Some, uh, some, some of the things that I love about it is the solidarity that we just prayed about. Solidarity with Christians all over our city and all over the world. I love the feeling of celebration. Everybody seems to be a little bit more peppy when you walk in, even to a gymnasium on an Easter Sunday morning. There's something you can feel almost in the air, the energy. I love the favorite songs that we sing i love to start out an Easter service with Christ the Lord has risen today. It just feels right. It feels a little bit like home, too. For many of you, it's nostalgic. You grew up celebrating Easter, and there are good memories or feelings that come to you from the past. But there's danger to Easter, too. There's a danger if we treat Easter like we would normally treat a holiday. Normally, we treat holidays like breaks from the normal. We treat holidays like we treat vacations when we hate our jobs. You live for it till it's done and you go back to misery. You go back to real life. There's a danger to us to treat Easter like a break from real life rather than as the most important influence shaping the lives we're going to live tomorrow morning, the lives we'll still be living next Sunday, the Sunday after that, next year, What we need is a way to channel Easter, what it's all about, into our real lives. Lives that are hard for a variety of reasons. Lives in which we're tempted, even as Christians, even those of you who are Christians this morning, we're tempted to forget about God's goodness and live as if He hasn't come for us in Jesus. What we need is a way to channel what Easter is about into our real lives. And what is Easter about? Easter is about the radical claim. The radical claim That a dead man has come back to life. A man whose body was as real as ours is. Whose body really did die. A death as real as the deaths will die. But who did not stay dead. Easter's about the radical claim that there exists right now, in a reality as real as the one we're in. Touchable, seeable. Seeable. There exists a body that was dead that is not anymore. And in that radical claim, another claim, just as radical and life-giving. That this man who was dead but is not dead anymore has the power to give life, eternal life, to anyone who trusts in him. And what we're going to try to do this morning for a few minutes together is press that truth, that radical claim into the real lives that we're living one of the ways we like to do that at Trinity each year, we walk through books of the Bible, verse by verse by verse. And this spring we've been in a Paul's letter to the second, second letter to the Corinthians. A lot of times when we're in the middle of a series like that and Easter rolls around, we try to take something from whatever series we're in, whatever part of the Bible we've been talking about, and connect it to the truth about Jesus and his resurrection. We believe all the Bible is about this story that ends with Jesus alive after he was dead. So we try to find a way to an angle in from whatever series we're in. We're going to do that this morning. We're going to look at a few verses from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, where Paul talks about longing, his longing. I want to try to connect it to our experience of longing. I think the key to bringing Easter into the real lives we're living is to bring Easter and the truth about it into something we're experiencing Today I want to try to help you see that you are living with a kind of longing. You may not always see it, you may not know what to call it, you may not know where it comes from, but you have it. It's part of who you are. I want to help you see that you are longing for something, so that we can then see what Paul's longing for, connect his longing to ours, and see that Jesus is exactly what each one of us lives for, is longing for, even if we don't know it. That's all I want to do this morning. I'm going to begin by reading 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the first four verses of that chapter. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, if you will, in honor of God's word. Listen to how Paul describes the longing he lives with. This is the word of the Lord. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed... Paul talking about his own body there. We have a building from God. A house not made with hands. Eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, this body, we groan. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan. Being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. This is God's word. You can be seated. Maybe after reading through those four verses, just as quickly as we've just done it, maybe for the first time for you, you're not immediately connecting with the feelings that Paul is describing. He describes groaning. That's intense. He describes his longing. He describes a burden that he carries. Maybe you stumbled your way through all the work that it takes to get kids ready for church, especially on Easter, what with all the seersucker and bow ties and suspenders. Maybe you had all this work to do this morning that you didn't finish up last week. Maybe you're weighed down by what you know you're going to have to do in the week to come. Maybe you haven't experienced longing this morning more than just the longing to just get here in one piece or to make it to the end of the day. Maybe you live that way day in, day out. The only longing you're paying attention to is the longing to survive what that day brings. It's easy to live moment to moment and day to day just trying to get through your responsibilities. I know that. I want to push you though. I want to push you this morning to recognize the deeper longing that you've got, even if you don't always see it. It's in each one of us. It's not always strong. It's not always noticeable, but it's always there. It's always ready to come out in the right circumstance. Sometimes that circumstance may be a disappointment, maybe a crushing disappointment. Sometimes it takes the loss of something precious, something or someone who's precious to you. Sometimes it takes actually getting what you want, Something you've worked towards, longed for, getting it and realizing that it actually isn't as great as you thought it would be. One way or another, all of us come to recognize at some point and at some level that our lives and our world, these things are fragile. We have limits that we can't control, that we can't rise above in our own power we realize that we want something more than what we're experiencing. I think this deeper longing explains why fairy tales are so popular across all times and all cultures. There's something that these stories connect to in us, even as adults, deep and powerful resonance. Even though we know that fairy tales aren't true in the history sense, there's something that rings true in them and that's why they're still around recently we introduced our kids to the Wizard of Oz I don't know that that's actually a fairy tale but near the beginning Dorothy sings Somewhere Over the Rainbow which I think is a pretty good anthem for what fairy tales represent Somewhere Over the Rainbow she sings way up high there's a land that I've heard of once in a lullaby Somewhere Over the Rainbow skies are blue and the dreams that you dare to dream really do come true Someday I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me, where troubles melt like lemon drops, way above the chimney tops. That's where you'll find me. Somewhere over the rainbow, bluebirds fly. Birds fly over the rainbow. Why then? Why can't I? What's so powerful about these stories? that stretch for other worlds for more than what we know for an ability to transcend our limits recently I read an essay in the New Republic magazine from a couple years ago called The Irresistible Psychology of Fairy Tales did you know that there's actually this big vibrant conversation among scholars who get paid to try to decide why fairy tales are so powerful Why we can't get enough of them? Why they stand the test of time and stretch across all sorts of boundaries of language and culture? There's a lot of different views, of course, about why this is the case, but one of the quotes from from an author that really strikes home is simply this. Why are fairy tales so powerful? Why are they irresistible? Quote, these things catch a need to move beyond the limits of reality. Now, One way to account for fairy tales being so powerful, I guess, is that we're all just prone to wishful thinking. I mean, it's not hard to recognize what we don't like about our lives and wish that they were different. Maybe that's all it is. Fairy tales are escapism, right? Why we long for more than what's real maybe is just about getting away. I think there's a better way to explain it, though. Think about the fact that only humans tell stories like this. Only humans have the power to detach themselves a little bit from survival mode, from instinct, from just like going through as whatever each day brings, like a dog goes through his days, just looking for food, looking for a place to sleep, looking for somebody to fight. Dogs don't long to fly like bluebirds. They don't imagine what it would be like to live happily ever after. It's distinctly human to do this. Maybe it's distinctly human because it's fundamentally human. Because there's something about us that leads us to this longing. Maybe it's because... We were made for more than this world. C.S. Lewis says this. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself... A desire which no experience in this world can satisfy? Well, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Friends, you need to recognize this morning, even if you didn't come in here thinking about it, that you are longing for something more. And that that longing is a sign of something true and fundamental about you. About who you are and what you were made for. A sign that you were made for more. In what this world allows you. So what is it? What is it that we're longing for? I want to take you into Paul's answer. This is what Paul's longing for. I want to walk you through a few things that we've just read together from the first four verses of chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What are we longing for? What is it we were made to crave? Initially, Paul's language here might sound otherworldly to you, but I think... With a little bit more reflection, it's going to sound a whole lot more like what you want to. Paul is longing for life. That's what he's longing for. And so are we. Let me walk you through a bit of the details. I don't want you taking my word for it. Let me show you where I'm getting this. At the heart of of these verses that we read is Paul saying that he's longing for something, that he's groaning. But for what? Why is he groaning? What is he longing for? He doesn't really say in these verses. He's just said it in the chapter before what we read. In chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says that we now live with what he calls the outer man, an age that is passing away, and that the outer man is being destroyed, he says, wasting away. He goes on in verse 18 to mention that all the things that are transient, all the things that are seen, all the things that you can see around you, they're ending, they're transient, they're, they're passing away. Paul is longing, he's groaning for a body that won't pass away. He's paying attention to what's happening to himself and to everything that he loves in this outer man. And he's not okay with it. He no- he's noticing what time does to everything. About this time last year, we, uh, our family was in Cambridge, England for a little getaway. And one of our favorite things about that city, uh, by our favorite I mean our little boy's favorite... Was this clock, this really bizarre clock, that's only about ten years old? It's it's one of the only new things in Cambridge. It's built into inside this uh, this facade of a really old building on one of Cambridge's colleges. It's called the Corpus Clock. And this clock is unlike anything we'd ever seen before. And it's got some of the basic elements you'd expect. You know, it's got a clock face that tells the time. There's little LED lights. That tell you where the hour is and where the uh, minute is and where the seconds are. The seconds are marked by a swinging pendulum down at the bottom. It's brass, like a lot of clocks. But that's about where the where the expected elements come to an end. What you notice from there is all that's unexpected. The clock is this round face, and the outer ring is pulled along with every ticking minute. It gets pulled a little bit further. And at the top of this clock is this grotesque locust seated up on top of it, like a, a sculpture of a locust. And with every second, with every pendulum swing, the, that locust's arms reach out and grab that clock face and pull it towards the locust's mouth. Now, for a five-year-old boy, what's not to love? I mean, a clock that's moved by a giant locust. It was amazing. But for those of us who take the point, it's a haunting image of what time does, right? What do locusts represent? They represent what devours. They represent absolute destruction. And that locust represents what time does to people, to everything. Paul knows that and he can't stand it. He's not cool with it. He's groaning. He's longing for more than this outer man that is passing away. He's tired of watching things get swallowed up by time. That's why he wants, that's why he groans, but something that's really important to notice here is that he doesn't want to be free of his body that's actually not what he wants when he talks about wanting heavenly dwelling a building made by God don't immediately assume Paul's talking about some chubby cherubs floating on clouds or some sort of free-floating spirit that just drifts around in the air for all of eternity that's not what Paul wants he's not longing to take off this body that's wasting away. He's longing to put on something better. Did you notice this? In this tent, verse 2 says, we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. He doesn't want to take off the body he has. He wants to put on something else. While we are still in this tent, this body, we groan, we're tired of wasting away. We're burdened. But not that we would be unclothed. We don't want to take off the body that we have, he says. But that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal, what is passing away, might be swallowed up by life. What's all this language about clothes? Sometimes people have criticized Christians for being ashamed of or down on our bodies. Maybe some Christians have been. I'm not going to say no one's ever been guilty of that, but that is not Christianity. Not the Bible. It's not Paul. We need our bodies for what we love about the world. We need our bodies for the pleasure we get from food or drink or love, for relationships with other people that live in other bodies. We need bodies. But our bodies are breaking down. Some of you are experiencing what Paul's talking about acutely this year. I know that. You've lost loved ones. You're dealing with chronic pain. You're noticing that you can't do what you used to be able to do in the body that you live in. You've seen what Paul says in chapter 4 that the outer man is wasting away. Paul has too, and he can't stand it. But he's hopeful. He says, when this tent is destroyed, when this body wastes away, We have another building, one designed by God and built by His hands, eternal, in the heavens, untouchable by time. He lives with the burden of this tent passing away, but it is feeding a longing for another one that won't pass away. And I think in this passage, Paul is putting his finger on our longings We tell each other fairy tales because we long for something more than what we're experiencing. Something more than what this world can offer us. And Paul is pointing us to what it is we long for. We long for life. A body that will live. We long to see what is mortal swallowed up by life. You see what Paul did there when he says what is mortal will be swallowed up by life? He's taking the image of that corpus clock. He didn't know about the clock, but he knew about what time does. He's taking the image of that clock, that devouring locust, swallowing up life, and he's flipping it. He believes that one day all that is mortal will be swallowed up not by time and death, but by life. Friends, maybe you didn't come in here realizing it this morning, but I hope you'll consider it now. You want what Paul wants, and it's because of how you were made. We as humans have a fundamental longing for life beyond the limits of this world because we were made to live. Because the Bible says our lives are too precious to simply pass away. We are made in the image of God. We, unique among all the other things in this world, reflect something of His beauty and His power and His creativity. There is only one you. There will never be another one. That's precious. That deserves to live until it doesn't. The Bible says that death and decay came into this world because we chose, each one of us, from the beginning. We have chosen not to be content reflecting something about God and His power and His beauty, but have decided to be our own gods, to live as if we were the reason that we exist, to live as if we have the right to do what we want with our lives, and we don't. So we live now caught in a tension, in a kind of paradox, lives that are dignified and precious and beautiful. We feel that about ourselves and on our good days about other people too. We feel that, but then we see what time does. We see decay, that the outer man is passing away. And so we live in this fairytale desire for something more. That's what the Bible explains to us. It's not just a mistake of some sort of evolutionary code. It's a reflection of how we were made and what we've done with what God has given us. But this is not the end of the story. Death entered our world because we brought it here. Death is on its way out of our world because God has drawn near to us. What is real now is not what it should be. And it is not yet what it will be because of Jesus. Paul is pointing us here to the gospel message, the hope of Easter. Easter. That because of Jesus, because the God of life who created everything that is, chose to enter this world where things are passing away, chose to take on a body, an outer man that would decay and die, because he chose to come and be part of our brokenness and our death. Because Jesus has died for us, And willingly let death swallow him up. We can be swallowed up by life. The message of the gospel is that Jesus' death wasn't deserved. He died as a penalty for our sin. He took on what we owed. And in his resurrection we have the promise that he drank down that cup of judgment to the last drop. That there is no sin any one of you have ever committed or could ever commit that he doesn't have the right to forgive. In Jesus' resurrection, we have proof that he has swallowed up death. And you say, maybe, you hear Paul longing for this mortality to be swallowed up by life, it's easy to kind of shrug your shoulders and say, yeah, sure, Paul, right. Right. Yeah, and and someday, over the rainbow, bluebirds fly. Maybe then, mortality will be swallowed up by life. And you'd be excused for thinking that, friends. Except that something radical has happened. Something has changed. Something has intervened in this world, in history... Something has intervened to, within the, in the person of a body as real as mine or yours. A body that was just as physical, just as touchable, just as killable as ours. That, that body really did die. And that body really does live now. What we celebrate on Easter and every Sunday is the resurrection of Jesus. And in his resurrection, a promise that he can offer us exactly what we're longing for. Paul doesn't defend that here. In 2 Corinthians 5, he doesn't mention anything about Jesus' resurrection. He's just longing for mortality to be swallowed up by life. He doesn't have to say it here because he said it in his first letter to them that we read from earlier today. Did you notice? There's a reason that Paul spends time in that letter mentioning the names of people who, can, who you can go talk to if you want to find out if Jesus really did rise from the dead. Cephas saw it. 500 other people saw it at one time. I saw it. Come talk to me. I'll tell you what I saw. Paul's pointing to real people with real names because he knows that everything we're hoping for, everything we long for in life depends on this having really happened. And in the the passage that Megan read, Paul says if Jesus isn't raised, if he doesn't have a real body that's really alive now, then you're still in your sins. Your faith is vain. The whole thing is empty. Meaningless. But in fact... He has been raised. And Paul tells us he is just the beginning. The first fruits from the dead. A sign of a process that's sure. That's in motion. And in which all who trust in him will be caught up and carried on. When Paul talks about Jesus being raised as first fruits, he's using an image from agriculture. The first crops to come up out of the ground were a sign that... That this crop, this planting made it through the dry season. It made it through the cold snap. It made it through all the challenges that could have kept it from coming. And now because that came up, the rest is coming too. It's only a matter of time. When we talk about Jesus' first fruits, when Paul points us there and says, you can trust him. He's saying that, that it started now. It's an organic process that once it started can't be stopped. Jesus' real physical body is alive and that means yours will be too if you trust in him. Everything we longs for, long for depends on him being alive and he is. He is risen. I want to say two things to finish. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus mentioned this earlier i want to say it again we're so glad that you're here every week we pray for that we long for friends who, who don't know christ yet to come and to hear and to consider what it might look like for you to bring jesus into your life as a savior as one you trust to save you from sin and death if that's you this morning i don't have the time to go into the evidence for jesus resurrection but it's there There's an incredible wealth of evidence from history. The same kind of evidence that we use to know anything else that we know about the past. It's there for the resurrection of Jesus. And if you're considering Jesus, I want to encourage you to make the resurrection the be all and end all. Everything stands or falls here. If Jesus really is alive, then even if some things about Christianity rub you the wrong way and you're not sure that you want to go all in with him, if Jesus really is alive, everything else falls into place. If he's alive, he has the right to tell us what is. He has the right to reshape how we think about things, set aside the things that may be bothering you about Christianity, do business with history. Is Jesus actually alive? If he is, then you worship him, you follow him, he's your Lord. If he's not, he's not worth your time. All of our faith is vain and we're most to be pitied. I am most to be pitied if he's not alive. What I want to ask you this morning is just to give me the chance to buy you lunch and to talk to you about the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. It's there. It's compelling. And I'd love to introduce you to it. And I want to speak to you as Christians this morning. Living in bodies that are still breaking down. I want you to hear from Paul's words, evidence that he gets you, that the Bible is true to life. It's honest and real. It understands your experience. You don't have yet what you long for. And you know you're longing for more than you'll ever have in this life. Your body may be breaking down now, but not for long a new day is already dawning so friends you have no reason to run from your longings you have no reason to pretend like it doesn't hurt when you lose what or whom you love you have no reason to escape don't run from your longings lean into them and look through them to Jesus because in his resurrection you have a reason to hope he is merely the first fruits a harvest is still coming father we won't believe even tomorrow morning much less this time next year Much less to the end of our lives and through all of the ups and downs that each life brings, we won't continue to believe apart from your grace giving us the ability every day to look again to Jesus with hope. We pray to you now through Paul's words, sharing at least something of his longing. We pray to you now that you would bring the day that you have promised where mortality will be swallowed up by life forever, where you will wipe away every tear from every face and remove every reason for sorrow. And we pray that you would help us as a community of friends to help each other to hold on for that day. Keep us, we pray, in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.